Today's scripture reading is selections from Psalm 72. Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people, give deliverance to the children of the needy, and crush the oppressor. May they fear you while the sun endures and as long as the moon throughout all generations. May he be like the rain that falls on the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. In his days, may the righteous flourish and peace abound till the moon be no more. May he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. May desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. May all kings fall down before him, all nations serve him. For he delivers the needy when he calls, the poor and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence he redeems their life and precious is their blood in his sight. May his name endure forever. His fame continue as long as the sun. May people be blessed in him. All nations call him blessed. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen Amen and and amen. amen. The word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be be to God. God. Thank you. Thank you for reading. Will you pray with me, please? Our Father in heaven, we ask that you would open our hearts to you now. And Holy Spirit, would you use Psalm 72 to do this and to renew us from within, all for your glory. Amen. Bruce Springsteen is a rock and roll musician. Most of you may know of him. He grew up in New Jersey. He says when he was seven years old, he went into his living room one night. He walked up to his parents' television, this black and white tube giant television. He turned it on and on came the Ed Sullivan show. He watched a man perform on the Ed Sullivan show. This man sang, this man sang fast and sang beautifully, and this man swiveled his hips while he was singing too. And Bruce says, as a seven-year-old boy, he was mesmerized. And he says that in that moment, he turned to his mom and said to his mom, Mom, that right there is what I want to be. That is what I want to become For the rest of my life. And he never forgot that moment. When you were young, I wonder who you looked up to. Maybe it was Elvis Presley, as Bruce Springsteen did. Maybe it was somebody else you saw on television. Somebody you wanted to be like in every way. And maybe you're young here, and right now you're looking up to somebody that is an athlete or a musician or someone like that. When I was young and a little boy... My dream was to become a man uh, who lived here, like a man who lived here in Atlanta. His name is Dale Murphy, Atlanta Braves baseball superstar Dale Murphy. He was my hero when I was a little boy. I wanted to hit the baseball just like him, and I wanted to be kind and caring just like him too. 
And when I was about Bruce Springsteen's age, age seven, when he saw Elvis, I was brought here to Atlanta by my family. We went to Fulton County Stadium and I saw my hero in the flesh. Even now, my heart beats fast, <laughs> to be honest. <clears throat> and so we, of course, entered the stadium two hours before game time because that's what you do when you're a baseball fan. Dale Murphy was practicing in right field. My father and our family, we went down along the right field fence, and there he was, and I was just hoping that he would stop and sign a baseball for me, and he did. My hero stood right before me. And as he handed me that baseball and pen back, I touched his hands just for a second. His giant hands, I felt like I was touching the hands of God in that moment. I wanted to become like him in every way. Every jersey I wore when I played sports had the number three. That was his number. I had every baseball card of his, every type of baseball card of his, too. I still want to be like him in some ways, I have to admit. I played on the in-town church softball team, and of course my jersey number was number three. Now there are a lot of similarities between Bruce Springsteen and Elvis Presley. The similarities between me and Dale Murphy end at wearing the same jersey number. (laughs) Because when I played on the church softball team, I struck out. I struck out at slow pitch softball. When you're young, you're conditioned to look up to someone, some older man or woman that you want to be like. You're literally little, and so you are looking up anyway. And so someone probably captured your heart, uh, gave you a great vision when you were younger. But as you get older, too, you still look up to people. There are men and women I look up to and want to be like. Maybe there's a man or woman you know that's older than you that you really want to be like. It's probably someone who is quick to share his heart, maybe quick to give his life away, quick to laugh, eager to listen, not perfect, but engaged with people and engaged with God. We need a vision to capture our heart, someone we can look at and say, I want to be like that person. King Solomon, who wrote our psalm today, Psalm 72, has that sort of vision. He's a young king, and he writes here this vision that has captured his heart of the kind of king that he wants to become. He wants to be like his dad, but so much more than that. And you see in what he writes here that he has this strong feeling inside of him that he needs help. He's a young king, and of course he needs help. He is, after all, the son of David, Talk about standing in someone else's shadow. The greatest of all kings, this king who has built an empire, and it's now his turn to take over. He feels his neediness in his bones, not only because of the power he assumes, but of the great wealth that is his too. He can have anything. And he has unlimited power. There are no Congress and no courts to check his power. He feels it in his bones. He has ascended then to become king. In Psalm 72, we're about halfway through the Psalms, and that fits perfectly in God's redemptive plan of history. At In Town here, we're in a series called Learning to Love God's Word, where we look at a different book of the Bible each week for several weeks now. And of course, today's book is the Psalms. There are 150 Psalms. About half are written by King David. And the Psalms are divided into five books, each book having its own theme. 
each book having about 30 or 40 psalms in it. And so book one includes Psalms 1 to 41. And as you know, book one is very personal, mostly written by King David. He reveals a lot of his heart. He writes things like, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He restores my soul. In Psalm 40, he writes, I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Very personal that draws us in. But then in book two, it changes a little bit. There's more of a national focus to it in Psalms 42 to 72. And 72 then is our psalm today. There's more of a national focus because King David is handing off this empire to his son. And so he feels the neediness in his bones. He feels it very deeply. In fact, he starts by writing in verses 1 through 4, asking God to move and to work in his life. What you notice in verses 1 through 4 is that his request is not, Lord, help me feel close to you. I feel far from you. I want to feel close to you. That's an okay request. But as a king, he feels a great sense of responsibility, and he is pleading for so much more. He says, Lord, give the king, that is me, give the king your justice. Give the king your righteousness. He's not in it for himself. He's not asking to know exactly what to do so he can make more money. He's asking the Lord for his heart. He desperately feels it. Lord, give me this. And why? For his own sake, no. For the poor, for the needy, and for the children who are in need as well. And so he prays, Lord, give me your justice. In effect, effect, he's praying, Lord, my heart is not where it is supposed to be. Make my heart like your heart. Give me more of you. Give me your heart so that I will think your thoughts after you, so that your priorities will become my priorities as I care for people. He is asking God to move for the benefit of others. And as the psalm goes on, he begins to describe what he hopes his life will be like as a blessing to others. In verse 6, he says, May my life be like rain that falls on the mown grass like showers that water the earth so that everyone is blessed. Later in verse 16, he says, Oh, may there be abundance of grain in the land. On the tops of the mountains, may that grain wave. May its fruit be like Lebanon. May people blossom in the cities like the grass of the field. Lord, this is not just about me. And so he accesses these metaphors from nature in pleading with God. It's not that he just wants to know what to do. It's not as if he's praying, Lord, just tell me what to do and I can keep my heart closed to you. No, it's so much more. He wants to grow over time. And he wants God to grow him in the same ways that God grows grass, grain, fruit. May it be for the benefit of others, for the poor and the needy. This sort of picture is is also in Psalm 1. It's a picture that King David paints as as his life for a blessing for others. Psalm 1 lays a foundation for the rest of the Psalms. It opens the door to the rest of the Psalms as, as it implores us to choose the way of wisdom. Psalm 1 says, He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. There's this beautiful image from nature of a tree that always prospers, whose leaf does not wither. 
And you know, a tree is deeply dependent, right? A tree doesn't grow on its own. Solomon is feeling his neediness in his bones. A tree has deep roots from below. It has uh, the need for rain and sunshine from above too. And a tree does not exist for itself. It provides shade and air and in some cases fruit too. In all that it does, it prospers. That's his hope. He feels his neediness with so much power and so much wealth standing in the shadow of his father. He feels it, so he's got to put pen to paper, as it were, and make this plea out of his neediness. I'm curious, when do you feel needy? This psalm is here for me. It's here for you this morning. When do you feel needy? And what does that feel like? Does it feel terrible? Does it feel like weakness, fear, maybe anxiety? And what are you needy about right now? What do you feel anxious about? What are you doing with that? Maybe you're anxious about something that you can't control, something you can't fix. Maybe you feel so needy and anxious this morning about someone whom you love but you can't fix him and you can't control her. In that moment, when you and I feel our neediness, which feels like weakness, we think at the time we've messed up. Why do we feel this way? If we had done things differently, we wouldn't feel this way. But when you feel your need, you're right where God wants you. You're ready for him to work in your life. When you feel needy, where do you take your neediness? We're tempted sometimes to numb the feeling of neediness, to numb that heartache by choosing paths that lead to shame and regret and make things worse, paths that close off our heart to God and to other people. Maybe you numb the feeling of neediness, but maybe more so you just try to ignore it. It's something you can't control. It's anxiety-producing, so you try to ignore it. We're good at ignoring our neediness. We're creative. One way to ignore your neediness is to work constantly, to stay busy seven days a week, to pour yourself into where you are competent and where you know the likely outcomes. You don't have to take any risk in opening up your heart to others and to God. But there is a better way. There is a better way that leads to growth, And we must choose not to ignore the full weight of our neediness so that we will long for God. God can do something with your neediness. Last year in Michigan, David Masarek decided to do something with a large, heavy stone that he owned. He bought his farm not that long ago, and with it came all sorts of things, a barn, a house, a giant rock. And he didn't know what to do with it, so he ignored it for a long time. He used it as a doorstop, didn't think of it as much. And every day he walked through that doorway to go outside, not even looking at it, ignoring it, ignoring this heavy rock. Seeing no other rocks like it, on his farm, he decided one day to pay attention to it. So he leaned over, he picked it up, and he noticed that it was very heavy, 22 pounds. 
a little bit bigger than a soccer ball with a lot of jagged edges. And he thought he would finally do something with it. So he carried it to an expert. He drove to Central Michigan University with his truck, drove up to the uh, building where the professor of geology worked, got in his truck, carried this giant stone into the geology building, found this expert and plopped it down on this table in front of her. And he said to her, I don't know what to do with this. Can you do something with it? And the expert said later that she knew within seconds of seeing this rock that it was special. And she knew that he had no idea how special it was. This dark brown 22-pound rock with streaks of royal blue and auburn orange is a meteorite. In fact, it's a meteorite worth over $100,000. But David had ignored it, ignored this rock for years. When he looked at it, he saw something to ignore. But when he handed it over to an expert who could see what he didn't see and who could do something with it, everything changed. In the hands of an expert, what he ignored for years was seen to be an object of extraordinary value. And that is the case with your neediness, your longings, your neediness that you try so hard to ignore in the hands of an expert is something of inestimable value. Your neediness is the path. It's not the obstruction. It is the path to change and to spiritual growth. And God implores you through Scripture to hand over your rock of neediness to him. He says, cast all your anxieties on me because I care for you. In Psalm 55, he says, cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you. Hand over your neediness to an expert who knows what you don't know and can see what you don't see. And he will draw you deeper into his love through it. And when you don't ignore this feeling of neediness or try to numb it in ways you regret later, when you turn to God honestly with your neediness, you notice things about your life begin to change. Your prayers start to change in small ways too. Your prayers for help don't stop at, Lord, fix this. Lord, can you just fix him? Can you just take away this pain? Your prayers begin to go a little bit deeper when you open up your heart to him and hand him your neediness. Certainly, you do continue to ask God to be at work, but God uses your neediness to lead you to desire more of him, and your prayers begin to change. You begin to ask more of him through the pain, to ask for his heart of wisdom, heart of peace, and heart of justice as well. The Psalms are a great help to us in this. The Psalms help us by defining for us what we feel. They help us in clarifying for us what we feel and what our need is. How often is it you go to God in prayer and you're not sure what your need is? You feel a thousand different things and they're hard to untangle. You go to him and you say, I don't know what I feel. I don't even know what to pray for. The Psalms are so helpful, though, because they put words 
to our deep feelings. The Psalms help pull out these feelings. They help us understand our rock of neediness that we try to ignore. Has it been the case for you? You've opened up the Psalms. You don't know what you're feeling exactly. You feel something really strongly. But what's been written on that page pulls it out of you. You think, that's exactly how I feel. I want to take that to the Lord. Maybe it comes from Psalm 6, where it says, I am weary with my moaning. My eye wastes away because of grief. And you think, Lord, this is what I feel. Will you help me? Or from Psalm 88, where it says, My soul is full of troubles. I cry out day and night. My eyes grow dim through sorrow. The Psalms can describe so, so clearly the anguish we feel and our neediness, but sometimes the Psalms are just great in describing where you are right now in relation to the Lord. In 2002, I remember watching the Super Bowl and waiting for the halftime show because my favorite band, U2, was coming on to play. And I was recording it on my VHS tape. <clears throat> and the band performs. You know the lead singer is named Bono. They sing some of their great songs, and all of a sudden he stops. The music stops. And Bono walks to the middle of the field. It's just him with a microphone and a spotlight on him. And he starts talking. Now, of course, there are maybe 100,000 people there. They, they say there are hundreds and hundreds of millions of people watching around the globe waiting for him to rock. And he just stops. He stands there. He holds the microphone. And he looks up. And he says, Return, O oh my soul, to your rest. For the Lord has dealt bountifully for you, with you. For you have delivered my soul from death, my eat, my eyes from tears, and my feet from stumbling. And as he's saying this, I had the thought, that's exactly what I feel. At my stage in life, at my age, with my challenges right now, what he is saying is exactly what I feel. Now, what I didn't know until later is that he is just standing there quoting Psalm 116 which is now my favorite psalm. The psalms help us put words to our neediness. The psalms pull it out of our heart so that we can then hand it to God. This helps us hand over our heart to God and then to be open to him. We hand our heart to this expert who knows what to do with it. So Solomon feels his neediness, and by the Holy Spirit, we're challenged to feel out the full weight of our neediness too for something better. For something much better. <clears throat> Solomon's vision of a king is one who's not in it for himself, but who works and labors to bless other people. We see that in Psalm 1. This king is like a tree firmly planted, growing fruit that is a blessing. This King Solomon continues in this Psalm 72. In verses 8 through 11, he describes a different kind of king, a fierce king who fights too. I'll paraphrase verses 8 through 11, which says, May the king's reach extend from sea to sea, from the river Euphrates to the ends of the earth. May his enemies lick his dust. May the coastlands, which means everywhere, may everywhere honor him. 
May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring him gifts. May all serve and all worship him. In verses 8 through 11, you have this picture of a king who fights for his people, which is a mirror image of Psalm 2. Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 work together as a gateway, a door opening to the rest of the Psalms that help to make uh, make sense of the rest of the Psalms. They work together in this way. Psalm 2 describes a king who breaks his enemies. Blessed are all who take refuge to him. Psalm 1 is an invitation to wisdom through deeper relationship with God. Psalm 2 describes this king who breaks apart our enemies and who provides refuge. Solomon goes further in verses 12 through 14. Now he really expands what he hopes for. In verse 12, he says, He, that is this king he wants to be, he delivers the needy when he calls, the poor, and him who has no helper. In effect, he's saying, this king listens and actually does something about it. He takes action. In verse 13, he has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy. This is a king who feels compassion, real compassion for weak people and saves them. And then finally in verse 14, from oppression and violence, he redeems their life. Precious is their blood in his sight. This is a king who redeems from death because his people are precious to him. He writes this Psalm 72, does Solomon, and he longs to be this sort of king. The one presented in Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 as well. But as you may know, that's not the sort of king that Solomon becomes. He chooses to numb his heart. He ignores his heart. He doesn't turn to God using earlier Psalms to pray. He moves away from God. In fact, he gives his heart away, not to God, but to his wives, to his 700 wives that he takes, many of whom don't know God at all. And then he decides to build idols to the gods that they worship, to the gods of Ashtoreth and Milcom. In the rest of the Psalms, 73 to 150, it is only God who is described as fulfilling the hopes of verses 12 to 14. These hopes that can be summarized as one who delivers the needy, has compassion on the weak, and redeems from death. This royal son that Solomon wanted to become when he was in his 20s, he did not become. The only royal son who delivers the weak and needy, the only king who fights temptation, who has compassion always for the needy, and who delivers us from our greatest enemy is King Jesus. Only through King Jesus and his saving work and his life, death, And resurrection, will will this happen? As it says in verse 17, that peace will abound till the moon is no more. These verses are about the faithful king. In verse 17, may his name endure forever. His fame continue, not a hundred years, not a thousand years, as long as the sun and more. May people be blessed in him. All nations call him blessed. Blessed be his glorious name forever. This king of Psalm 2, who fights for his people, is Jesus. He is the one who destroyed our greatest enemy, death, so that we don't have to be afraid anymore. And the path in Psalm 1 we are called to walk is the path that he already walked. He is the tree 
planted by the streams of water, whose leaf does not wither, and whatever he does prospers. King Solomon gave in to temptation, ignored his heart as well, gave his heart away to idols instead of to God. But Jesus, our king, fought every temptation, and now he's a real help to us. He gives us a path to follow against temptation as he quotes scripture. But not just an example and a path, he gives us real power as well to say no, to ignore temptation so that we will say yes to him, so that we will give our heart to him. And that as we do that, we will ask for a heart of justice for the benefit of other people. King Solomon wants his life to be like rain that falls on the mown grass. This is what our lives need to be like, though. Our lives can be that sort of blessing to people, like rain that falls on the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. You and I, not just King Solomon, not just King Jesus, you and I are called to care for the poor and the needy too. When I worked in college student ministry, uh, one spring break in March, I took about 20 college students to the south side of Chicago. And our goal there in working with several other churches and an organization there too was simply to help in any way that we could. The churches there on the ground knew what the needs were, and so we just gave them a week of our time. They sent us to different local elementary schools. And so my role during the week, in part, was to ferry three students here, four students here, seven students here, to different elementary schools. And so to this one school in particular, I took three students, and they walked in, and they said to the teachers there, we are here to do whatever you want us to do to help you this week. You decide. So I did that every day. On the last day of the spring break, I went to go pick up these three pretty thoughtful students. I drove up to the elementary school and to the horseshoe roundabout to pick them up, and they came bouncing out. And they hopped in the back of my car, and in that moment, I felt like a dad. And so I joked with them, and I said, well, kids, how was school today? You know, and they laughed, and I did too. And I asked them about what they did, and they began to describe that as they spent time with these students all day. And and then I said to the three students in the back of my car, I said, tell me, what are these elementary school students, what what do they want to be when they grow up? Did you ask them that? What do they look ahead and think, man, that's what I want to be like. That's captured my heart. Who do they want to grow up and be like? And at that moment, the car got really quiet. Now, these are three kind of bouncy, vivacious senior girls, but it got quiet. And then one of them spoke up and said, well, we asked them what they want to be when they grow up. And they all gave the same answer. They all said, we just want to get out. We just want to get out of our neighborhood go somewhere else, anywhere else. These kids, they don't have the space to dream. And it was in that moment I realized a couple things. I've been told since I was a boy that, uh, Andrew, if you work hard, you can do anything. And for me, that's largely been true because I've had just a wealth of opportunities. 
But these kids don't have the same kind of opportunity. Now, I mention that to say that our vision at InTown, which is how we fulfill our mission to love our community to life, our vision explicitly includes cultural engagement. Engagement in culture is a broad term because culture is a very big term. But it certainly means not withdrawing from culture, not turning a blind eye to those who are poor and needy. As you ask God to give you his heart, as you bring your neediness to him, let's have our prayers be like Solomon's here. Lord, don't just draw me close to you and make me feel like I'm close to you. Do more than that. Give me your heart of justice to fight for the poor and the needy so that I would be a blessing to those around me and change me through it, Lord. Well, I mentioned Bruce Springsteen at the start of our time and him staring into that giant, heavy television, wanting to be like that guy, wanting to be like Elvis, saying to his mom, Mom, that's who I really want to be like. 20 years after that, Bruce Springsteen was traveling the country, a superstar, And he played a concert in Memphis. And this is the mid-70s. And he'd never met his hero, Elvis. So he played his concert. And he drove to South Memphis, the Whitehaven area. And he drove up to Elvis' house. He was actually dropped off. And he stood on the sidewalk outside of a stone fence not really knowing exactly what he would do. It was 3 a.m. in the morning. He said he looked over the stone fence, and off in the distance, maybe 200 yards away, he could see the house. This was called Graceland. And he could see lights on, on the second floor. And so he thought to himself, this is my chance. This is what I've got to do. I've got to jump the stone fence. I've got to run up there to the front door. He'll open the front door and he'll say, I've been waiting on you. So he practiced his speech, what he would say while he was standing there on the sidewalk. And he already had in his pocket lyrics to a song that he'd written that he was going to hand to the king, hoping that his hero would take him inside, take him into his life. So he finally does it. He jumps over the stone fence, starts sprinting all the way up there, gets all the way to the front porch, to the front door. And can you imagine what happened? The door doesn't open. Security comes on both sides of him. Now, the security didn't tackle him, which they had every right to do. They just walked up to him and said, who are you and what do you think you're doing? (laughs) And Bruce frantically starts giving some of his speech, but the speech was written for the king, not for them, and he's not sure what to say. And the security personnel looks at him and and says, he's not even here. Elvis is not here. He's in California. And Bruce is devastated. Because the king would die a year later, and he never met his hero. Now, I want you to imagine with me for a moment a different scenario, a different possibility. And in fact, the way the story should be. Imagine the king 
is in his house. And Bruce jumps the stone wall and starts running, sprinting up toward the house. And when he's about halfway there, he looks up and he sees the front door and the door flies open. And out comes the king, Elvis, sprinting toward Bruce. Now, this is Elvis in the mid-70s. So this, (laughs) it's very hard to imagine him in the middle of the night sprinting in the dark toward Bruce Springsteen, right? But that's exactly the way it should have been. Imagine the king then sprinting toward Bruce. Bruce stops, his eyes wide open, not knowing what to do. And the king comes up to him, gathers his breath. And the king looks at Bruce and says, I'm so glad you're here. I've been waiting on you to come. I know exactly who you are. Come inside. Let's hang out. That's the way it should be. Where the king runs up to Bruce and Bruce is about to practice his speech and pull his lyrics out and the king waves that away and says, no, you don't need to do any of that. When Jesus tells the parable of the prodigal son who returns to his father, Jesus says, this is exactly how the father responds to you and I when we return to him. And the father has been looking for you to return so that when he sees you coming, the door really does fly open And he sprints toward you and you stop and you you try to give your speech of repentance that you've practiced, including new vows of obedience to be different next time. He waves them away, right? And he embraces you. The Father through his Psalms invites you and I to bring our whole lives to him including our neediness, to cast the full weight of it on him. And he is an expert. He knows exactly what to do with it. Will you pray with me, please? Lord, would you lead us not to ignore our heart as Solomon did, not to go down the paths he did. Lead us to feel even the full weight of our neediness so that it will drive us to you deeper into the love of your son, Jesus, and give us your heart for the poor and the needy as you do it. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.